Hey there, I'm Justin Zyduck. I'm Jim Cannon, and you're listening to The Iron Age of Comics, a critical reevaluation of comic books from about 1985 to 2000. Today we're talking about Thunderbolts, the ongoing series initiated by writer Kurt Busiek and penciler Mark Bagley for Marvel Comics. This comic is probably best known for the legendary twist ending to the first issue, after introducing what appears to be a team of all-new superheroes and putting them through their paces with some fairly standard battles against bad guys. The last page reveals that they're actually Baron Zemo and a supervillain group, the Masters of Evil, posing as superheroes under new identities to gain the public's trust. This was a genuine, unspoiled reveal for most readers who picked up Thunderbolts number one on February 19th, 1997. It immediately put the book on the map and is still often considered one of the biggest and most satisfying surprise endings to a comic book ever. It's the first thing that everybody points out when they discuss the series, and of course, we're going to talk about it as well. But I sometimes think that the impact of the twist overshadows the work that Busick and Begley did on the rest of the series, right? Like... Oh man, they really got me. So great. Uh, and then they did like 30 more issues after that, I guess. I don't. <laughs> so, you know, it's, I, I, uh, I, I do think that we should like really explore what happened in this book after that initial shock and see sort of what the actual meat of the series was. Um, to that end, in this episode, we will cover the first year plus a couple of tie-in books, which brings the villain disguised as hero's arc to a head and sets up a new status quo going forward. So usually we begin with a bit of personal reflection about the work in question. Um, I have sort of a funny story about my experience reading this for the first time that I'm going to hold on to for the opportune moment. Uh, but I'll ask you, Jim, did they get you with the issue one reveal? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, crap. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. Well, I've already ruined everything. Uh, no, actually, I I clearly remember reading about these Thunderbolts guys in Wizard magazine the guide to comics this was right as heroes reborn was starting so marvel had shunted the avengers and ff off to the image guys and the premier heroes of the marvel universe were no longer present (laughs) in the marvel universe so I, i read this article about how the guy from marvel's was introducing a whole new batch of superheroes to sort of pick up the slack and i rolled my eyes (laughs) how dare marvel pull this nonsense when they couldn't even take advantage of the actual, you know, good characters they already had, like (laughs) Thing or Captain America, I was annoyed, to say the least. Sure. So, issue one whistled right past me. Also, 1997, uh, I was a junior in college, uh, nowhere near a comic shop that February, so no chance of stumbling across it. However, during spring break in March, because I was totally cool i was back home and visited my local and i i honestly don't remember if the internet spoiled me or if i just sort of glanced at issue two and had a total what the hell moment (laughs) but i managed to snag both two and one which is possibly a reprint i can't tell looking at my copy even today uh and immediately put the title on hold because the plot turned out to be the complete opposite 
of what I assumed it to be. And yeah, I, I was instantly hooked. Okay. So we talked about Kurt uh, letter hack turn pro music in our episode about Marvels. And we've talked about Mark, winner of the 1983 Marvel tryout book and penciling, Bagley. Those are their, <laughs> their official Marvel nicknames. Um, and <laughs> so that had the Stan had completely given up by that point. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not 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 his best work. Um, yeah, so we talked about Bagley in Ultimate Spider-Man. So we can get right into how this series comes to be. So Busick tells the story that he used to make regular visits to his parents out of state. And to keep his mind occupied and stay awake on these long drives, he would do these kind of brainstorming exercises of what would I do if I had to write, you know, some ongoing regular comic book title. So he would work out a couple of years worth of storylines, character arcs, just that sort of, you know, like a simulation, right? Mm -hmm. This was after he had become a comics pro, but before he was like a big name writer, like he would become later. So... This is not exactly a total fan pipe dream, like if you or me were like rattling off Batman ideas to nobody on Twitter, right? But like, wait, what? <laughs> those those don't count. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, the, the, those pictures have been going to no one. <laughs> oh no, my heart, my dreams crushed. Yeah. Oh well, we still have the podcast on radio on. live. <laughs> <laughs> you can hear the moment that his heart tears apart. No, but, um, yeah, these, I mean, like, so these are, he's a comics pro, but like, these are not like actionable things that he's going to like go into the office on Monday and type up and, and pitch to somebody. Like he's not in a position yet to be offered or even be in the conversation about like these big name books. So, so on one trip, he assigns himself Avengers and his idea is that over the course of a long story arc, that he's going to introduce a bunch of new characters who would gradually replace the existing roster. So you'd have like the Black Knight or, you know, or whoever, they would quit and bring in some new guy as a replacement and, and so on and so forth. This would go on until the roster is Captain America plus a pack of new heroes. And that's when the curtain drops and the new members reveal that they were actually the Masters of Evil all along. And they have taken over the Avengers from within. Gasp! Choke! <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good twist, right? <laughs> it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a neat idea, right? I think we all recognize this, mm -hmm. but Busick ultimately decides that it wouldn't work. And like, you want to talk about discipline. He shoots down his own pitch, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's just him in the car going like, here's my idea, Kurt. Well, it's a good idea, Kurt, but I don't think it's going to work. <laughs> Take it again. <laughs> yeah, so, because like his, his um the editor inside him, right, is thinking yeah. like during the buildup, fans are going to complain that like, I can't believe you're, you're dumping all my favorite Avengers characters for these nobodies. And Black Knight. And Black Knight. <laughs> Black Knight's got a lot of fans. People like no, the laser sword. I don't. The bomber I jacket. I don't believe that at all. <laughs> I You'd have to give me some kind of proof other than just you read it on the internet to tell me anyone cares about Black Knight at all. Dane Whitman stands. That email goes to <laughs> Podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> Inbox is going to blow up. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, um, but the you know on the other hand, like if the new characters catch on, Busick compares it to Terra being a mole in the New Teen Titans. That like it's a satisfying gut punch for the reveal that she was a traitor. But like, what if Robin found out that everyone in the Titans but him was working for Deathstroke? Like you would have destroyed the book, you know, in a way. So like, what do you what, what do you think about that? 
I guess it's not a bad idea on the face of it, sort of setting up a, a serious diehard situation where, say, Robin or Captain America are now trapped in the team headquarters surrounded by villains. But there's not very far to go with that, is there, beyond the diehard scenario? Yeah. This kind of hangs a lampshade on the generally lackadaisical security that superheroes operate under, despite having hordes of enemies who want to kill them that often includes um, vast numbers of shapeshifters. <laughs> uh, so, like, you know, this guy in a mask who has similar powers to my arch nemesis, but is clearly a completely different person, seems legit. <laughs> Guess I'll invite him back to the Batcave for teen crumpets and show off all my crime files. <laughs> right, like that happens way too often, and I, I just I don't understand. But so like heroes are forced to appear as complete idiots for that plot to play out, and that's one of my least favorite styles of superhero stories. Like they wouldn't check the backgrounds on any of these people. You're just an Avenger now. <laughs> I yeah, I don't know. So you, so you and you and uh, you know, nineteen ninety whatever music are of an accord on this. I see. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. But we cut to years later, and Busick has done at this point Marvels and Untold Tales of Spider-Man, uh, his own Astro City, and now he's the type of writer who does get invited to like the big Marvel creative retreat. Uh, this was as Marvel editor Tom Brivert describes it in his Substack newsletter, which I read and recommend to all of you out there in Radio Land. Uh, this was just before Heroes Reborn, which uh, you mentioned just now, and we talked about briefly in our episode on Captain America Operation Rebirth. Um, I should be doing, like, asterisks and editorial notes here. <laughs> Ed note? Yeah. Yeah. I know. But yeah, so, like, one of the main things that they were talking about at this retreat was that, like, what kind of project should we do now that Avengers and Fantastic Four are off the table for at, at least a year? Like, the X-Men is still the biggest thing in the industry. Right at this point in the 90s, and Spider Man is digging himself out of the clone saga, so he's <laughs> he's settled. But uh, we have this big hole in the lineup here, right? <laughs> that we have to we have to figure out what to do with. And Busick remembered his idea and figured, like, hey, this is going to be actually a better idea as its own book rather than you know taking over or hijacking the Avengers. He pitched it to Brevert and editor in chief Bob Harris, our, our our old friend friend of the show. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I just make that noise whenever he's mentioned. But, you know, to, to their credit, I suppose. Uh, yeah, they both uh, saw potential in it and greenlit it, like, on the spot, I guess. Cool. But uh, but obviously, the, the twist is such a good component of that idea that they decide to integrate it on a tighter timetable rather than, like, dragging it out for a year or two or whatever. So when Marvel announced the Thunderbolts, they were pitched to readers as just the latest and greatest superheroes of the Marvel universe, like you're, like you're talking about, right? Taking over for the Avengers and the Fantastic Four because they were missing presumed dead after Onslaught, which I guess we'll have to talk about at some point. Yeah, so that thus the that Big Wizard article I read promoting these lame Jamokes, Citizen V, and Mach 1. <laughs> I, I, I do wonder, though, like if Wizard was in on it at that point, like if they're doing this like promo article totally straight and going like, oh, these guys are lame. Like, what are we going <laughs> to... I guess we have to hype it up because we're that's what we do. But but I wonder if they were. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't been able to find out like if you know the wizard guys were like, oh yeah, they you know Busick told us and we played along, or we generally thought that we were hyping. You know, Atlas is the the sensational character find in 1997. I don't know because they were certainly they were in on the joke for the century. Yeah. So I don't know. That's an interesting notion to ponder. 
Uh, to further the illusion, the team got a first appearance as guest stars in Incredible Hulk number 449. And that was just like, hey, we're the new guys. We're, if you've got a Hulk problem, we're going to offer to take him off your hands for you. Uh, they also showed up in a one-shot called Tales from the Marvel Universe, which was, again, just the standard thing of we got some new characters that are being showcased elsewhere to build buzz before launching their own book. Just out of curiosity, wasn't there a Hulk in the Heroes Reborn Universe 2? So why was there still a Hulk in the regular Marvel Universe? How now, Green Hulk? <laughs> as, uh, as resident onslaught expert on this podcast, I will, I will uh, explain. <laughs> no, it's... Um, there was, it's, it's, it's silly to even, <laughs> because Onslaught had like reality warping powers and the Hulk hit him really, really hard. It like punched so hard that he split into a banner Hulk and a non-banner Hulk. And one of the two went into the Onslaught portal thing. Um, this is all, okay. Yeah, it's, um, it's sad that I have read enough comic books that that actually makes sense. <laughs> it's, it's close enough, right? Uh, but what's, what's, what's really sad <laughs> about the actual uh, comic is that it falls to Gambit to explain the metaphysical. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, maybe he's punching the, the you know, the, I'm not going to do a cage next, but maybe he's punching the, the reality warping powers out of, out of Onslaught. So it's never a good situation when like Gambit has to deliver the scientific explanation for what has to happen. <laughs> So anyway, so yeah, that's that's like the idea of Thunderbolts' pitch to the audience as nothing to see, you know, something to see here, but nothing suspicious, we hope. Uh, but your, yeah. as your personal story suggests, and that's why we talk about these things ahead of time, kids, uh, this was a calculated risk from a certain point of view, like launching a series on the strength of a concept that you can't tell people about ahead of time. Uh, you've got all new characters with no apparent connections to existing franchises. Um, Citizen V is a reference to an obscure golden ager, but like, that's not, you know, that's not X-Men. Only Roy Thomas was excited to hear about a new Citizen V. <laughs> <laughs> you got like an armor guy. You've got a, you got a tech guy. You've got a giant guy. You've got some female characters who sort of shoot some various kinds of energy. Uh, all in all, it sort of looks like the team that you would build like in a role-playing game, you know, for your, your superhero universe or mm -hmm. like archetypes for, a parody or something. So it's not, it's not like intrinsically interesting as a concept. Well, exactly. Hence my initial disgust and, and complete lack of interest. Mm -hmm. And like the cover to issue one promises that there's going to be like a shocking secret of some sort, but like every image title from the nineties would promise, you know, they would introduce a bunch of characters without much reason to care about them other than the promise of a mysterious backstory. So this could, you know, this, this, this is just <laughs> hype, right? Like shocking secret. Okay. Whatever. Yeah. Um, and like even the name is pretty generic and doesn't tell you anything about the characters, which you know sort of makes sense because Zemo can't call them the team that's secretly bad guys, which would be helpful from a marketing perspective, but not from a infiltrating <laughs> society perspective or the the wolves in sheep's yeah. clothing or or, or whatever. Um, apparently, the name was a sticking point for Bob Harris, but Busick and Brevert couldn't come up with anything better. They uh, they had like a big list apparently, and that's been lost to time, but. The only one that Brevet remembers was the All-Americans. It's kind of funny because, of course, Thunderbolts, while being similar to Thunderbirds and Thundercats, which is called out in the book by Spider-Man at one point, it's also a name that skews closely to fascist imagery. So it's kind of the perfect in-joke for Helmut Zemo to use. Yeah, I, I imagine he likes that. So I have to ask you, like, is this the last time in comics history, do you think, that you could really pull off 
this sort of thing without the cat being let out of the bag ahead of time. So like like just this year we had, you know, the Ms. Marvel leak. Yeah, I I guess probably. Um this was at the cusp of the internet taking over comics journalism and previews becoming a major way customers interacted with upcoming titles, not just retailers. And certainly in the age of social media, when you can leak stuff via Twitter mm. or what have you anonymously, it's really hard to keep secret that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Even though at the same time, that's all still kind of marketing and a way to build hype. Yeah. Um, this is, this was kind of hype built retroactively because as people discovered this shocking twist in number one, then the book became more in demand, or at least that was, you know, my experience with it. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think that fans are a little more trained now to sniff the kind of thing out, like the way that. Uh, everybody figured out that Benedict Cumberbatch was playing Khan, right? Even though, like, nothing to see here, right? Just a new character. And everybody's yeah. like, well, it's it's Khan, right? It's. Yeah. No, no, totally. His his name is, is John. John, John yeah, yeah. That's the ticket. That's... His name is John. Yeah. I, I, I think that if they announce this today, right? Just like, here's a bunch of new superheroes. No special gimmick here to see. And they somehow kept it under wraps. I think you would still be expecting the other shoe to drop and there were to be some sort of twist or gimmick that is not being told to you up front. Like, even if you didn't guess specifically that it was the Masters of Evil, I think you would have gone into this looking for a twist, if not that twist. And to, in all fairness, I think that that kind of presupposition is is because of this book itself. Sure. So here is my funny story about uh, discovering Thunderbolts. Mm-hmm. So I first heard about Thunderbolts from a blurb in Bullpen Bulletins. And that was, um, for anybody who doesn't know, that, that was Marvel's in-house promo page. So it was, he was hyping that issue of Incredible Hulk. Like, don't miss the first appearance of Marvel's newest and greatest superstars, right? And I had a somewhat different initial reaction from you. Instead of being like, who are these, who are these clowns are gonna, that Marvel is trying to pass off as, <laughs> as, the, as the new hotness? I, I could still be intrigued by a new group of superheroes. Like mm-hmm. my, my heart was not yet made of stone as it is today. <laughs> like mine? <laughs> I, 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 I got a, a pretty, a pretty granite ticker down here too. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I, I decided to pick up Hulk 449, despite not being a regular reader of, uh, Peter David's Hulk at the time. But like we've been saying, like there's not much to the characters on the surface and it didn't really have a whole lot of, interesting stuff coming out about the characters in that issue. Like it, it could have been, you know, any group of superheroes with fairly interchangeable dialogue. Um, so I was like, okay, well, you know, whatever. I tried something out. I'm out of buck 50, but I'm not like mad or anything. Right. I'm just going to, I'll just not pick up Thunderbolts one or two. <laughs> right. But for some reason, and oh, I, no. <laughs> I honestly can't remember why I did it. It might've been to like round out a minimum order on like a mail order or something. Cause I used to do that. Uh, I decided to take a chance on issue three and I still had not yet had the twist spoiled because, you know, Oh my God. Yeah. It was, <laughs> this was like in these days, if you weren't like checking the internet every day and you missed wizard or something for a month or two, you could be totally oblivious. So I came in to issue three. I read the caption that explains that they're really the masters of evil. And I vividly recall that my reaction was, 
Hold on. So the Masters of Evil are impersonating the Thunderbolts? <laughs> like... Like, like, you know, like, 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 like when Mysterio dresses up as Spider-Man or something, right? I'm like, man, this mm-hmm. is pretty early for this to have happened, you know? But <laughs> so I, I'm, so I'm waiting in this, in this issue for like, well, okay, wh- when do the real Thunderbolts show up? Because they're doing all this Masters of Evil stuff. They're fighting the new Masters of Evil. <laughs> and it took me like, literally, like, like, seriously, like a couple of pages at least to be like, oh, this is the point of the book, isn't it? This is, okay. That makes sense because why wow. else would you pitch this? Yeah. So, uh, I still experienced the twist. That's awesome. Yeah, but it wasn't like people who read issue number one had like that, you know, smash impact. And even you might have had like a, a big surprise, like picking that up. I was like more like a car left in neutral, like sort of rolling <laughs> off a cliff gradually. <laughs> like, oh, they're the masters of evil for real. Okay, there is no. Okay, okay. The whole- so <laughs> so he was. He was working for internal affairs the whole time. <laughs> Are we seeing there's some sort of connection between Glory and Ben? Or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's my story. Wow, not that's the awesome, not the optimal reading experience, but it was it was an, it was an interesting uh, way to come into this. So let's get into the book itself. Um, the general arc of the first twelve issues is the Thunderbolts slash Masters of Evil. To my surprise, right. Are, are are basically setting themselves up as the premier superhero team in the absence of the Avengers and the Fantastic Four. Zemo's ultimate goal is to get enough public trust that the government will turn over the Avengers files, which has all this like juicy information that they can use for their own diabolical ends. So they fight a bunch of villains, like any superhero team does, right? They do heroic stuff, and it works. The public loves them. Uh, the mayor of New York City, who... May or may not supposed to be Giuliani uh, gives them access to Four Freedoms Plaza, which is the Fantastic Four's former headquarters. There's a couple of issues where the mayor is explicitly Giuliani. Yeah, but I think by the end of that arc, they had stepped back from that for whatever reason. And this was before he had. Right. <laughs> he was still or, popular. So yeah. at the time. So like he was on Seinfeld and stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I don't, you know, I do not live in. I've never lived in New York City, and like I knew who Rudy Giuliani was, right, in the '90s. But I, yeah, I don't know if that was like a likeness thing, but whatever. Um, in the course of doing all this, some of the villains find out that they actually like being superheroes. You know, the recognition, um, not having to be on the run from the from the law, all that stuff. And this sets up a bunch of fractures and dissension in the team. So let's go through the members uh, one by one. The leader is Baron Zemo, who is posing as Citizen V. And as he points out, that's V for victory, not V like five, Roman numeral five. Um, he's mm-hmm. a pretty uncomplicated, unambiguous supervillain, at least at this point in the run. He's, you know, essentially like Cobra Commander or Megatron. Like he's a big blustery guy. He doesn't, he, he's mean to his, to his underlings. Uh, that's, that, that's about all there is to him at this point, really. Pretty much. He's even got a nearly featureless chrome mask like Cobra Commander. It's interesting how even though he wears red, white, and blue epaulets on his uniform, the rest of his outfit is purple, hmm. which is not quite the magenta of his Baron Zemo costume, but still a, a huge clue that flew over our heads at the time. So Helmut Zemo is recognizable as the villain used for the Civil War movie, but in the comics, he's a very different character. 
13th Baron of his name and son of the guy who built the buzz bomb that killed Bucky and put Captain America into suspended animation. The Baron Zemo from World War II died in an early issue of the Avengers, but Helmet here took up the mantle and the name and became a recurring Cap foe. Part of the reason he wears a mask 24-7 is that he's been hideously disfigured by an accident involving something called Adhesive X. Now, why he doesn't have Fixer alter his appearance is not explained, though other Thunderbolts get new faces. Uh, I assume that he's just sort of trying to cash in on that spawn thing of, like, the <laughs> the burnt hamburger <laughs> face is cool now. <laughs> With or without shoelace holding his face together. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> so, uh, Mach 1 who was formerly known as the Beetle, here imagined as sort of like a human fighter jet, you know, armor guy. And Songbird, who was formerly Screaming Mimi from, I think, Marvel 2-in-1 issues primarily. Um, they're sort of the heart of the team, both in the idea that these people are pretending to be heroes and also then aspiring to become that for real, um, but also because they become like a romantic couple, the two of them. The former Beetle... Abner Jenkins is, is an engineer who decided to try super crime because he couldn't get ahead in his professional life. It's the, sort of the standard, you know, like, I'll, I'll show you kind of thing, right? <laughs> um, for him, the superhero life is like the appreciation that he's always craved but never gotten. Beetle is the perfect character for this story because he's pretty much like a, like a nine-to-five supervillain. Yeah. Like someone who has a modicum of street cred but no actual wins under his belt. And though he's worked with the Masters of Evil before, he's mostly just gotten his butt kicked by Spider-Man or Daredevil. <laughs> he is real small potatoes, but he has a lot of potential. He's a low-rent Iron Man, even in his Silver Age origin. Yeah, there's a scene in one of these issues where he's taking Songbird around the city, you know, or they're at the, the top of the World Trade Center. And going like, well, over there is where Spider-Man beat me up, and over there is where, <laughs> <laughs> where that happens. <laughs> <laughs> she's, and she's like, okay, you don't you don't really have to show me this, but um, uh, to to give you a sense, sort of like of the Beatles' like hierarchy and like status as a villain, there's a great scene in issue three, my first issue, of course, where uh, Mach <laughs> One apprehends a burglar and drops him off the police, and he says like, oh, uh, you know, the, he had an accomplice and must have gotten away with the loot, and then it turns out like he just stole the guy's, like he stopped the burglar, but he took the, like the loot that he'd already stolen. Just because, like, why not, right? <laughs> if I was the Beatle, <laughs> I would, like, this, like, seven grand. I'm going to, yeah, that's that's awesome, right? All in a day's work. Yeah. And then Zemo was like, you idiot. How could you have? <laughs> what if somebody believes him? But, yeah. So, like, this is clearly not, like, an evil genius with a master plan. This is a guy who's, like, no, a bag of money. No. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> He's kind of a schmuck. Yeah. And, and it's great. Right. Uh, Screaming Mimi had some sort of vocal powers, and here she has like a device that it's around her neck, and it sort of converts her screams into solid shapes. So if you imagine like a Green Lantern ring, uh, but it's pink, right? And there's a bit at one point where Claw, Master of Sound, um, if I was a, if I was him, I would always say Claw, comma Master of Sound, because that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he figures out that, like the, the the technology is is ripped off from him, so that's kind of a cool a uh, connection to the Marvel universe. Uh, she was a teenage runaway from a bad family situation. Um, she comes from circumstances, as as Aikwood would say. Uh, so, so like her main character trait is that she likes to keep people at a distance because eventually, like everybody connected with her, leaves or gets hurt or or whatever. 
So getting close to Mach 1 is a dangerous thing for her to do, she feels. Yeah, Mimi slash Songbird is basically completely reinvented for this story, I think. Or perhaps she was just given an actual personality for the first time? Yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> she, she used to be part of a team of wrestling-themed supervillains, but then took up with a guy called Angar the Screamer, apparently because they both have sound-based powers. She's also clearly the breakout character from this book with her rogue-like hairdo and her ingenue personality. Yeah, that's a that's a good um a good connection to draw there. I think that makes sense. Maybe she's also sort of supposed to appeal to like, you know, the reader's Lancelot complex too, like like Rogue does, like, oh I will <laughs> you know, I, I will I will save you, sad girl. Maybe you will be my girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh and that's that's basically how how Abner sees her too, I think. Yeah. Um or excuse me, Abe. <laughs> um and Melissa as you know, uh Songbird's real name. The relationship they have is very important to the arc of this book as these these villains metamorphose into heroes. The relationship starts slowly, but they're clearly a serious couple by the end of the first year. Mach one has a tendency to be easily distracted when Songbird is in peril, but as she grows in confidence and masters her abilities, that becomes less of a liability. I, I will say it was a little creepy that when he first started hitting on her, Mach 1 would call Songbird Kiddo. That yeah. went away pretty quickly, at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's just one of those, um, oh, nope, nope, nobody nobody likes that. Um, it is funny that, like, Abe is his idea of a cooler, younger first name, because, like, Abner is, you know, nobody's called Abner anymore, I guess, at the time. But, like, I feel like the family feud results for Abe Blank are probably... Lincoln or a Simpson, so I don't know how I don't know how much like <laughs> young cool guy cred he's going to get out of that. Well, I don't. It's not like he's getting much young uh, cred, but I th- I do think Abe is a more heroic name than Abner. Sorry, Abners of the world. <laughs> <laughs> but um, and I think it's pretty much entirely be- because of Lincoln. Um, Abe Simpson was a World War II hero as well, so I think we should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's basically give, give Nick the, Fury. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> give the the leader of the the flying hellfishes his <laughs> due. <laughs> Sorry. So Atlas is formerly Goliath, the original Power Man. He's the growing guy, and he finds himself liking the benefits of the hero lifestyle as well. Um, I have to say that I, of all the characters in here, like I relate to Atlas the most because he is like me. He's from Wisconsin. He doesn't like to make tough decisions. Uh, he will do whatever a guy in a purple mask tells him to do, pretty much. <laughs> those are those are your three defining traits. Those, yeah, as I, have I mean, it's, it's <laughs> me to a T. Uh, it's like that's that's the point of contrast to like Mach One and Songbird for his characters that he is more inherently loyal to Zemo. He just sort of like lacks direction and needs somebody to give it to him. In the Thunderbolts annual, it's also revealed that that Zemo rescued Atlas from a weird size-changing dimension called Cosmos. That's with a K. So Atlas feels like he owes Zemo a life debt. Like a Wookiee. Exactly. Uh, So Atlas develops like a romantic relationship with the mayor's liaison, Dallas Riordan. This is his conflict of interest is that like he has to hide who he really is as he's like starting to go out with with this woman. Well, I mean, they all have to hide who they are. That's the whole premise. <laughs> well, sure. But I think it's it's interesting that Atlas's turning point doesn't come 
uh, out of his burgeoning relationship with Dallas, but from a threat made to a teammate. I think Atlas also is the one who's most changed by the developments in this book. Every previous appearance I've read of him, in particular in his Goliath persona, he's been an absolute jerk. Mm. Like he was one of the primary guys who crippled Hercules during the Siege of Avengers Mansion, for example. And he once fought Luke Cage over the Power Man moniker. But here he's kind of a misguided lummox who just followed the path of least resistance. A big dummy just like me, right? So <laughs> <laughs> I, I bet I bet he would have I bet he would have read Thunderbolts number three and kept waiting for the real Thunderbolts to show up. <laughs> <laughs> so when are so hold on. Where's the real Mach one? <laughs> I demand to see the real songbird. Um, yeah. Next on the roster is Meteorite, who is the villain as Moonstone. So she's fought, you know, the Hulk, fought Captain America, has been sort of a masters of evil, you know, standby. Uh, she flies and shoots energy blasts, and she's probably like the most fun and compelling character, I think, because she's completely amoral. Like, I'm not a D&D expert exactly but like i think on the new on the uh alignment chart that's neutral evil right just only interested in like however a given situation can benefit her personally right the, the purest form of evil yes yeah um if you like if you haven't read this or you know somebody who hasn't read this and you are they like the sort of like messy drama creating drama for the sake of it and like really enjoying it kind of character like this is your this is your new favorite character is is media. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like when the core of the team eventually rebels, it's less about her reforming or turning over a new leaf or whatever, and more like, well, looks at the tables have turned on Zemo. How can I? <laughs> what can I get out of this? Well, I, I, because as again revealed in the annual, Zemo broke Moonstone out of prison when she was trying to serve her sentence and actually make good with the law. She actually starts from a position of, of not really being all that loyal to Zemo or his plan. She's kind of stuck with him. Like they engineered this jailbreak. So if she goes back to prison, they'll just add more time to her stay. Right. <laughs> but now she's kind of in it and so she's going to play along. But she's just playing along. So it's less the tables have turned. What can I do now? And more, I'm going to subvert Zemo's authority from within so when things have inevitably go south, I can take advantage and come out on top myself. Villains. <laughs> right? Yeah. So this is part of the fun of the book because while all the characters are, are playing hero, they're still pretty much operating with the mindsets of bad guys. And that's a very refreshing and interesting take. And like the loose cannon character who undermines the leader's authority, like that's a, a standard superhero team trope. Like Hawkeye used to disc cap back in the kooky quartet days. Uh, but like ultimately, you know, always heroic goodness compels them to put aside their differences and work together. Like, there's no guarantee here. Like, she's gonna sell them out as first as soon as she can. Right. Um, but Moonstone is the star scream here. She's she's not the Hawkeye. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, Baron Zima has left to use the bathroom. Now I am the leader right. of the Decepticons <laughs> kind of thing. You know. <laughs> That's why we love him. Uh, yep. So yeah. So. Uh, Moonstone or meteorite, she—I feel like the she goes back to being called Moonstone eventually. So if I if I use them interchangeably, yep. you'll know out there. Um, she's a corrupt psychologist. She enjoys manipulating people and does so with her teammates. 
So like there's a scene in uh, Distant Rumblings, which is a one shot. I mean, it was the negative one flashback issue. If you remember that month, um, mm-hmm. she attends like a conference with uh, colleagues and she's talking about how she's just started her practice and she's treating this patient with trust issues. And, she, you know, this, this patient is worried that her, her husband is cheating on her and she's helping her get past this. Right. And she's talking about like, yeah, I feel this enormous sense of power to be able to treat this woman and to be able to just use my words to help her like become more, you know, emotionally stable and grow as a person. And then she's like, hold on a second. And she calls up the patient's house and pretends to be some woman looking for her husband. Just like, Hey, is, is your husband home? Oh, sorry. Click just to set off her paranoia. Right. Cause she's like, well, she's a good client. I can't, if I cure her, I can't really afford a, that setback. So I'm just going to trigger her whenever I can. So like, that's the kind of, that's the kind of person that she is. And at like this point, Sir Simon Milligan would, would point at her and chant evil, evil, evil. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like, Moonstone is great, largely because she has her own agenda throughout the story, and you're never really sure whose side she's on, other than her own, of course. Mm-hmm. So Techno is formerly known as the Fixer, and he uses like a morphing tech pack. Uh, morphing was kind of like <laughs> the new, the new hotness in the '90s, right? Uh, and that like absorbs and reconfigures technology, and he uses like they all have some sort of facial apparatus that the fixer works up and he looks like a young guy with a goatee for, for some reason. He's the one guy who doesn't betray Zemo and like, that's not out of a misplaced loyalty like Atlas has. He's just kind of a scumbag, right? (laughs) I mean, he's, he's ex Hydra. So I guess like once you sign up with them, you sort of made your choice in life. (laughs) Uh, he also gets killed in a fight halfway through the first year or so um, with the elements of doom, but he uploads his consciousness into his machines and becomes sort of a living robot or whatever you want to call that life form, right? And there's not – what what makes this different – because, like, that's a pretty standard trope, right? Like, robot man or or whatever. Yep. Um, sort of – Cyborg. Yeah, exactly. So the, the twist here is that he's not, like – he's not a tragic figure. He's not like, oh, I will never know – you know, the, the caress of the wind on my cheek or the, you know, the, the touch of a woman's lips. He is like psyched to have this new mechanical reconfigurable body. And he shows it off as often as he can, often to Baron Zemo's like act of annoyance. Yeah, it's a good running joke, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Fixer, and I I know I'm doing the same thing with the, the different names, but I, like Fixer and Moonstone, I can't. Like techno and meteorite were just like temporary names that they immediately abandoned once the the jig is up. So I th- I just mm-hmm. think of them as Moonstone and Fixer and Fixer is unrepentantly, uncomplicatedly, and unambiguously a jerk. He throws in with Zemo in the first place out of boredom, and while he enjoys playing superhero mostly for the challenges presented, he's just as happy going back to being a full fledged supervillain. Like I said, he's enamored with his new robot body and all the stuff he can do with it. He doesn't miss being a human at all, which suggests deep psychological problems. <laughs> um, and he's an, another guy who's essentially reinvented for this book, although I don't think he had much of a personality before. When he worked for Hydra, it was as a technical expert. And he partnered with another jabroni na- named Mentallo. <laughs> And that's about it. 
like just one of those villains Stan tried out to fill a page count once upon a time, largely forgotten by modern writers until somebody like Busick comes along to play with the toys. So that's the core team. Uh, one thing to note is that with, uh, with the exception of Zemo, uh, these are not like A-list villains, right? Like even Zemo is debatable, I guess. Like I think of him as A-list, but you know he's not like Kang or Magneto or any, or something like that. And I th- I think too that th- this is the book that made Zemo A-list. To be honest, yeah. I mean, I, I think yeah. The he did. I mean, he led the the siege on Avengers Mansion back in Roger Stern's run, but I think that was. I don't know that he had done like anything big since then, and this was like really the sort of what makes his place in the Marvel universe going forward, really. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. other than him, like I think the biggest name on this team is probably the Beatle, right? <laughs> to give you a sense of the star power, like the theoretical star power at work here, right? It's <laughs> so, like, by and large, these characters were just sort of somebody, like, like you've been saying, like for Captain America or the thing to fight, not a lot of personality, not a lot of depth. So for a lot of them, this is like the first time that they're getting a lot of significant personality work. Uh, so what do you think of this of this mix of characters here? So I th- this is a good range of powers, personalities, and motivations. You, you're right that until now, they've almost all been one-note thugs and supervillains, basically mooks to show up, cause some trouble, and get their chops busted by any and all available heroes. Beetle might have been the biggest pull just by dint of appearing on Spider-Man and his amazing friends. <laughs> but I think Moonstone probably had the greatest depth up to this point. I think she was originally a Ms. Marvel villain, the original Ms. Marvel, who's now Captain Marvel. Um, it graduated to a kind of generic Avenger journeyman villain status. But her, mm-hmm. her background as a psychologist and her flying blaster brick powers made her genuinely dangerous in a way that Beetle or Screaming Mimi never really were. What do you think about the costumes? Because, you know, everybody gets a new a superheroic look. Um, I think that Bagley's designs, assuming that he was the, the designer on this, I think they hold up pretty well, actually. Like they're, they're just past the point of like the worst of the nineties, like straps and pouches excess of the time. You know, they have a lot of visual flair, like modern superhero costumes tend to, they have a lot of like fiddly bits. I guess I would, I would call it for my, for my non artistic uh, vocabulary standpoint. <laughs> they, they, they have some, um, some flair to them. Well, and straps and pouches do appear both Atlas and, mm. and Citizen V where these wrapped bracers and, and techno of course has a lot of pouches. Overall, they're pretty solid generic superhero costumes, which was again, led me to dismiss them initially. But once you kind of overlay the original silver age villain costumes over their hero personas, they become a little less generic. So again, that royal purple that Citizen V is sporting, rather than more patriotic colors. Atlas's slightly ionic red eyes visible in his open head sock mask. Mach 1 is more of a, a human jet, as you said, than a human insect. But the basic layout of his costume is the same. Yeah. So, yeah, there's kind of updates and reconfigurings and recolorings, but also... Uh, having their their original costumes to work from gives them some distinction. So this is something I wanted to wanted to bring up here is I cannot figure, and it's been what it's been like twenty five years at this point. I cannot yeah. figure out how Citizen V's mask works. Like, <laughs> <at all. laughs> like 
It looks like it might be like a one-way mirror or something, sort of like Mysterio's helmet, like because it's sort of like a flat plane of glass almost. But you can you can sort of see his face through it a lot of the time. But I'm not sure if we're seeing his face like indistinctly through flat frosted glass, or if it's actually molded to the structure of his face or something. But then it it changes expression, so I'm not. <laughs> I'm, yes. what, what do you what do you what do you what are your thoughts on this? I think it's deliberately ambiguous. It can't be molded to his face because Zemo's grill is a morbid mass of melted tissue thanks to adhesive X. I don't think it's flat glass, and you're seeing the impression of his face underneath either. I, is it some kind of liquid metal? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like a like a ter- like a Terminator Two situation that it, like it mimics his facial movements. I don't. Yeah. I don't know. Or is it just like comic book magic? I think it's just comic book magic. That's probably it. But yeah, I mean, it, it looks cool, which is the the essence of the you know who cares how this works. But my entire reason for wanting to do this to wanting to cover the thunderbolts on here is just to see. Do you have any thoughts about <laughs> how, that, how that mask works? Because yeah. <laughs> so we'll skip to the end and wrap up now. Is that? Is yeah, that I think correct? I think I think we're done here. Um, it's a great book. <laughs> uh, Moonstone's cool. No definitive answer on the mask, though. So we failed mm. in yeah. our explorations and analysis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I'm sure everybody tuned in for. So we'll try to keep up the pace here and not waste your time too much longer. Um, that's not true. We're, we're gonna, a few we're, more we're, bullet we're, points we should hit, though. <laughs> a few more. Yeah, so in the first couple of issues, the Thunderbolts fight the Wrecking Crew, the Mad Thinker, a new Masters of Evil. They also fight over the course of the series Arnim Zola, the Growing Man, The Elements of Doom. This is a very silver and bronze age set of opponents here. Like Busick and Bagley are sort of issuing the earlier 90s trend of introducing, you know, edgy new mystery villains with names like Blood Axe or Strife or Death Watch or... Actual names. Bone Zipper. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I made a Bone Zipper, but... Um, that that, that kind of like compound word, if you have a, a word with an I in it, becomes a Y... Yeah, none, none of that here. Uh, these are like this is like raiding the toy box, right? Of the the classic Marvel universe, and as a result, the actual like superhero fighting fisticuffs action that's going on here wouldn't necessarily be out of place in an issue of the Champions from like 1977 or something. <laughs> Which I'm, and I, I, I am I am I am perhaps the biggest fan of the Champions on the internet. I'm going to put it out there. Somebody fight me for it, but. Yeah, I, it, it's a good thing, but yeah. I think it's, it's notable for its for its time. I think there's a, a slightly slight veneer of greater sophistication to these stories than the ones from the champions. <laughs> I, you know, just throwing that out there. Um, but that's the thing. Like, the, you have over 30 years of Mar- Marvel continuity to draw from at this point. There are loads of lesser knowns and also reigns that only a guy like Kurt Busiek would even think to use. The growing man? So random, or at least it seems to be, until you get to issue 13 and realize that the growing man is integral to the story music has been plotting all along, which, just skip ahead, as it turns out, growing man is a weapon of Kang's, a robot that increases in size whenever it is struck. Its size-changing abilities are related to Atlas's and that cosmos dimension he was trapped in before Zemo saved him. So, like, it's the tr- the, the tracks are laid. And yeah, it, it's it it rewards rereading, which so few comics do, to be <laughs> honest. So it's really, yeah, 
the random weird villains are actually really key to the whole structure of the story. But yeah, I think the the result is an interesting synthesis of sort of like, you know, what you would call old school superheroes, right? But given a fresh spin because technically this isn't a superhero book as such, even mm-hmm. though it totally is. So like this isn't like when they fight the Wrecking Crew, it's not just the 500th time that some Marvel superhero has <laughs> fought the Wrecking Crew. <laughs> You know, <laughs> the motivations are like a little bit different here. Cause like, yeah. for example, like everything that Zemo does as Citizen V is public relations essentially. So like he's doing all the stuff that a superhero would do, but he's doing it very consciously going like, well, what would look the best in any given situation? So he talks in this very square cliche superhero dialogue. You know, he's always like, you will, f- you know, face, you know, your, 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 your justice this day villain. And <laughs> when he talks to like, when he talks to the public, it's like, well, you know, the, the firefighters are the real superheroes of <laughs> the world here. So like, you know, the angle is that like Zemo is talking like that in this sort of like generic way, because he's trying to be the most palatable, you know, nice guy superhero that he possibly can. So like, Music can sort of play with those old cliches and tropes without being just without just like repeating them for the sake of repeating them. Yeah, I read all of Zemo's dialogue with a German accent, but imagined when he was playing C- Citizen V, he had that sort of generic American Midwest thing going on, like a total flip. Yeah, I was I was just like picture like whoever played like assorted superheroes on Spider Man and his amazing friends, like whatever, just any kind of like generic superhero voice is what I picture coming out of him or you're coming out of <laughs> just, him. Just bland and loud. <laughs> yes, like this, Citizen V. I'm Citizen V. Right? That's 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 what that's what I that's what I imagine. And then like yeah. when he's talking on Thunderbolts he's like, ah German. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, I I just think of like what music is doing here as sort of a very particular phenomenon of the late nineties DC and Marvel. That like after the early Iron Age had sort of thrown the baby out with the bathwater in a lot of places. And so like now your villains have to be called Blood Axe or whatever. Like you have creators like Kurt Busiek and Mark Wade and like Grant Morrison trying to find a happy medium of like, can we do something that dusts off the stuff that we like about these older comics, but at least move it forward or, or change it up a bit. And I was certainly the type of consumer ready for the attitude by 1997. Oh yeah, me too. I and mean, that's that's why I love this so much, right? Oh, yeah. I still do. So in issue four, the team requires a complication. They meet a teenage orphan girl who was abducted and experimented on by the evil geneticist Arnim Zola, granting her electricity powers. She helps the team defeat Zola, and she's invited to join the team as Jolt. So that's like a standard superhero team plotline, right? Like, you helped us beat this villain. You had no place else to go. Why don't you join the team? But they don't tell her that they're the masters of evil. Obviously, they don't let her in on the scheme. They just think rescuing a girl and having her join the team is going to be good for their image. Specifically, Moonstone suggests Jolt join the team while they're all standing in front of a lot of cameras and essentially trapping Zemo into agreeing. And Moonstone Mm -hmm. sees Jolt as a tool to use against Zemo when the time comes. But maybe they actually bond? It's a little hard to tell from Moonstone's end. Yeah, because like Jolt is sort of, she's like Kitty Pryde joining the X-Men, 
in a way. Like that's she's like a, a plucky new recruit who forms this surrogate family with her teammates, right? That's how she sort of sees herself in the dynamic. Only in this comic, it's like if Kitty Pride joined the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants instead of the <laughs> X-Men and like and like just didn't didn't realize it. Yeah, and she's Joel is like sort of the Kamala Khan of the nineties. She's this plucky young Asian American superhero who has studied the Avengers and can identify obscure villains like the growing man or the elements of doom that the supervillains simply do not recognize. Nor did I, to be frank. Joel is kind of a self-insert for Kurt, isn't she? <laughs> um, <laughs> just since the Avengers are so neat, just like Kurt Busiek. <laughs> yeah. And, but you know, not for the first time. I have to wonder why Joel doesn't have a more prominent place in the current Marvel Universe. Yeah, I think we I think we both looked up like what Jolt has been up to, and it's mostly been like some Thunderbolts appearances in the years since, and some teamwork here and there. But yeah, it does seem like this is a character that you could really like rescue from sort of also ran status, and she'd be perfect for the the young Avengers with yeah. Miles and Kamala and and all those kids, you know. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So with Jolt on the team the Thunderbolts have to sort of maintain their cover and act like heroes, even in private and combined with Joel's hero worship and actually wanting to do the right thing for genuine altruistic reasons. This starts pushing the core of the team towards like, you know, I kind of wish we could keep being heroes that we didn't have to eventually betray the entire world and go back to being (laughs) the masters of evil. Ah, shucks. So like, yeah. So like this leads to what I think is like my personal favorite beat in the first 12 issues. So Jolt and Meteorite, they seem to be bonding. Again, sort of think like Kitty and Storm, like the way that they bond in Claremont's X-Men. But Citizen V slash Baron Zemo, uh, he's worried that Jolt is becoming too much of a distraction from the plan. And he suggests to Meteorite, maybe we should just kill her, right? Hmm. And Meteorite goes, I got no problem with that, but like that's gonna look bad if we if we lose our spunky <laughs> new recruit, right? So like Meteorite has had what has seemed like a genuine connection in the earlier scene where she says, you know, I hope that you think of us as a family. I don't have a daughter, but if I did, I I I wish that she, I would hope that she would be like you. So that seems to be like an actual connection that she's forming there. And then she turns around and is like, Oh, you know, I don't have any moral objection to, to killing her. I just think it's gonna be bad PR. So like, again, that's like, that's skewering all the superhero tropes, right? Like skewering the, the sort of surrogate mother daughter thing there, but in a way that isn't actually making fun of the trope, which I think is, is an interesting maneuver there. At the same time, like like you say, we are invited to question meteorite's position. Like, is she being truthful with Zemo that like, she actually just would kill this girl, but it's going to look bad. We're not really given that answer. And I think that's one of the things that's actually fun to think about. Reading yeah, I, it's I agree. This is a great setup, and like I said, it, it's ambiguous. Um, is Moonstone speaking Zemo's language in order to protect Jolt, or is she cautioning Zemo not to blow everything because of a little annoyance? You know, further complicating this exchange is the knowledge that Moonstone suggested taking Jolt onto the team just to mess with Zemo in the first place. <laughs> so. If she's genuinely protecting Joel, is it because Joel is a tool to use against Zemo when the time comes? Or is Moonstone actually beginning to care about someone besides herself? So yeah, like, 
That's good. That's good comic writing because yeah. you have all the pieces and you can kind of go either way depending on how you're feeling that 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 time or 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 at least you're on the hook to think like how will this play out? Mm-hmm. Particularly, what's going to happen when Jolt finds out the truth? Because <laughs> right. as she obviously will. It's so it's the the Stan Lee soap opera stuff taken to like a bizarre like level 11 <laughs> kind of right. um amount yeah even even chris claremont in like prime x-men days was not working at the drama dramatic level of is she going to adopt her as her surrogate daughter or kill her if it's if she gets out of line right <laughs> and either one would make sense <laughs> yeah yeah you, you, you don't know yeah yeah so that's the characters um the trick about high concept superhero books is that they're hard to build a long running series out of because high concepts sort of have a way of boxing you in. Like you can do like a million issues of the Avengers as soon as, as long as you can think of new scenarios and things for them to actually do because the storytelling engine is just stop threats, preserve the status quo, right? With the Thunderbolt setup, they have an actual goal or like an end game. So like something has to give eventually or you just never get into the fireworks factory. <laughs> so Busick pulls the trigger in issue 10, just as the team are sort of getting uh, awarded their full, like Avengers type security clearance, you know, like uh, Paragon level or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's actually from Avengers lore or just something that like, that sounds cool. But again, this is what, this is what Zemo says that he's wanted all along, right? He's constantly on calls with Dallas Riordan, sometimes passive aggressively, sometimes aggressive, aggressively going like, I need those files. It would be a lot easier to fight the Avengers old villains if I had those files. At one point, he actually refuses to help because it's like, well, I'm not going to get my people in trouble if you're not going to tell me what the elements of doom actually are. But yeah, so they're having this big sort of press conference, you know, award ceremony, and then shield agents bust in and expose them. Uh, The Thunderbolts basically go like, it's a fair cop, right? They flee to a satellite headquarters. Well, first they blow up Four Freedoms Plaza. That has repercussions like down the line for the Fantastic Four. But then the Thunderbolts flee to a satellite headquarters and like satellite, like in space satellite, not a secondary <laughs> headquarters. And yeah, it's it's common. So you, you just like, you casually go like, oh yeah, I know a place up in space that we can go hang out for a while. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> so this all cools off, yeah. And 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 from the staging ground, Zemo starts using a bio modem. Keep this phrase in mind: bio modem uh, that he <laughs> they picked up in an earlier adventure to influence militaries in various countries to basically stage a series of military coups, and it works. They start taking over the world. Yeah, the bio modem. It's essentially a <laughs> MacGuffin, but frustratingly, the early adventure you allude to happened in another book specifically something called Spider-Man Team-Up. So the linchpin of Zemo's plan to take over the world was acquired outside of the main title, which that's not great storytelling. I'm reminded of the time Nightwing got shot in the head and turned amnesic. Not in his own title, but in a Batman title. Uh, I wouldn't know anything about that. (laughs) I I, I understand. We we repress trauma, Justin. Uh, Just like Nightwing. (laughs) <laughs> but it, it's a <laughs> uh yeah so like it's kind of a common complaint with team-up books right that they're skippable because they don't have a significant impact in any of the characters and they don't count right 
I've heard that like the reason that like Marvel team up and Marvel two and one got canceled in the eighties is because the direct market had sort of started to take over and like a team up book with no context, like sells well on newsstands, but sells less well than in like a third Spider-Man book or a thing solo series that actually has continuity in it would sell to the direct market audience. Hmm. So this almost like, this looks like a, a sort of a brave way of making these books count, right? Cause this does count. This has a significant impact on the last arc of the first year of the series. But like you said, like this demonstrates why they didn't make, when they did team up books, they, why they made them to be non-essential because I was a regular reader of Spider-Man comics at this time, right? Like for my sins. And even I didn't read Spider-Man team up. So I didn't, so like I, I was, I was, I I read it for this. Right. But like, I was just going off of the editor's note, like the little, the little um, footnote there that says like, Oh, we picked up a biomotive in Spider-Man team up number seven. Like I'll, I'll believe you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know if you were lying to me. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, I guess, I mean, I guess it's supposed to also emphasize the interconnectivity of the Marvel universe. And maybe allude to those day the sixties when you could actually collect all of the Marvel books and read the adventures of of everyone in the universe. But by like nineteen ninety seven, that would be simply impossible to do. So I don't, yeah. I don't know. I'm still torqued about it. I guess. <laughs> I mean, I, I suppose like if you're coming to this for the first time now and you're reading all the stuff, you know, in collections or digitally, they probably throw in like that and the annual 97 that has the actual origin of the Thunderbolts and the distant rumblings that has sort of like the flashback material. But yeah, at the time, like I did not, I did not read any of those ancillary things. So like a lot of important stuff I just missed. Right. Well, those I have because, you know, it says Thunderbolts across the the top of it, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but uh, this team up thing. Yeah. I didn't, even think to try to track it down for this, which is to my eternal shame, but then I get to complain <laughs> about this. So it bounces out in the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will say like, I mean like the, the main takeaway from that Spider-Man team up is one, there's a bio modem that basically is some kind of, kind of mind control device. And two, like Spider-Man gets framed for a murder and the Beatle is like, this is awesome because we get to fight Spider-Man and we're the good guys here. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, fun, but, you know, it's, it's Never not... Never change, Abner. Never change. Yeah. So with issue 10, we have moved from the sort of long con posing as heroes for some sort of sneaky, underhanded motives to... Ah, just forget it. We're going to take over the world now. <laughs> Done with this hero thing. And Zemo admits that he allowed this to, he like he allowed this to happen because he could obviously tell that everybody else in the team was starting to become tempted by the hero lifestyle. So he decides, look, I'm going to, I like, I admit it. I let shield know. I'm going to burn all the bridges that we built so that you will have to stick with me. Literally. Like he points out that the world knows they're lying supervillains, but also all the supervillains they fought as faux heroes will be angry with them too. So they really only have Zemo to look after them. Yeah. That's a, it's a clever plan on Zemo's part. And also, on music's part, right? That's no. Well, he is an evil genius. Yeah, <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't want to be on Kirby's bad side, actually, because he would. Oh no, be... I was talking about Zemo. But I'm tish. But yeah, so like this, this sets up 
the last arc of the first year. You have Zemo is triumphant. They are gradually taking over the world through these series of mind control military coups. Uh, the Fixer is happy being number two. He's a happy, you know, uh, man behind the prince. Uh, you have Mach 1, Songbird, and Atlas are disappointed that they have sort of lost all their superhero perks. But they don't really see that they have any place else to go. And Meteorite is just trying to figure out whatever the best angle is for her. Uh, Jolt stows away in the satellite. And, you know, obviously, like, heartbroken to find out that who she thought were her friends were actually these bad guys all along, lying to her. But she is the one who sort of really convinces our, you know, quote-unquote good guys to rebel against Zemo. Um, she also comes up with a plan. Like, almost every aspect of this plan is down to Jolt. So she is the brains <laughs> of the operation here. Wait, narratively, she has to be, right? Like, the others are caught between yeah. their better and worse natures, completely indecisive. They need Jolt to give them the um, the push to respond to their better instincts, step up and do the right thing. But even when she's able to mo- motivate them to act, she has to have a plan ready for them because they're still villains. They don't really know what to do. How do we yeah. save the world? That's not our job. <laughs> we don't know. So she's got to kind of point them in the right direction. And I, I also want to mention that Atlas only turns on Zemo when Jolt's life is directly threatened. Until then, he's gamely loyal to the crazy German, but Jolt reminds Atlas of his little sister, a little sister who idolized him and died tragically young trying to emulate him, an event which is implied to have set him on the path to mercenary soldier and eventually supervillain all in the first place. So, like, Jolt is an important part of his redemption arc is is because she represents his sister and the, the path he didn't take. Mm-hmm. So the Avengers and Fantastic Four by this point have returned from the Heroes Reborn thing. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> and this is like one of the first things that they have to be, that they have to take care of to the point that like Thor hasn't even shaved off the beard that he had in the first arc of the Busick, uh, George Perez run of the Avengers. <laughs> so like as soon as they step foot on Zemo satellite, they get mind zapped by this biomodem to fight the rebellious Thunderbolts. Um, probably should have thought of that ahead of time. Um, so there's like a big drag out fight, which is always fun, right? And the way that it works is that sort of by messing with who you as the audience are rooting for. Because like the Avengers are the good guys, but they are mind controlled into being the bad guys. And the Thunderbolts are the bad guys who are deciding to be the good guys, but then eventually have to act as bad guys to get the motivate the good guys. And, and you know, it's... <laughs> I'm going around in a circle here, but you, you, you see, you see the, the, yeah. the dramatic device being used here. Yeah, it was pretty cool. And the drama was heightened by the fact that the Thunderbolts are outnumbered and outgunned. But thankfully, the Biobotum's control slows the Avengers down and dulls their senses. So the Thunderbolts can hold their own. And it also turns out that Iron Man very luckily has anti-mind control tech built into his suit. It's a shame he, he couldn't share that with the rest of the team, don't you think? But um, so he's <laughs> able to help them turn the tide. But it's also like Iron Man is really irritated that he has to team up with the Beetle and Screaming Mimi to fight his <laughs> friends. So he's like, oh, all right, I guess, I guess I'll team up with you guys. <sighs> <laughs> yeah, he actually says like, I don't like you. But yeah. <laughs> um, maybe Iron Man was like, oh, I'm sorry. Did you did you guys want anti-mind control devices? I didn't ask. <laughs> no, sorry. No, 
I already pay for the mansion. I pay for your stipend. I pay for your Avengers, Avengers communicards. Uh, I'm I'm not throwing in anti mind control tech. Okay, right. you guys scrape together the money for that. I'm out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Tony Stark uh, scraping off the leeches to his, his brilliance. <laughs> so, the Thunderbolts help free the heroes, and they stop Zemo's biomodem scheme. And there are two really great moments at the end of the storyline. So first of all, Moonstone absolutely beats the crap out of Zemo. Like, not just in the way that, like, super, super people, you know, beat each other up and there's little, you know, stars that come out of their jaw when you punch them. She is, like, battering and breaking him, like, cracking ribs. Uh, it, it describes, like, his teeth being turned into powder. Like, really, <laughs> a, a really serious beating here beyond what you usually get in a comic. So if memory serves, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe Deluxe Edition describes Moonstone <laughs> as being able to lift open parentheses, press, close parentheses, <laughs> 50 tons with little effort. So that's magnitude stronger than Spider-Man. And Moonstone is not pulling her punches the way a hero would. She is trying to cripple Zemo. But this isn't like a moment of heroic redemption for Moonstone. She's just mad. (laughs) She's mad because they had this nice con going. They had a comfortable lifestyle, access to whatever they want. And he messed it up for this dumb world conquest thing (laughs) that she doesn't really want to be a part of. Right. And I think that's, and that's sort of a self-aware thing that music is doing here of pointing out that like, as much as, you know, try to take over the world is like the cliche villain plot. Right. Most villains, if they thought about it, probably don't actually want to do that or whatever is entailed and actually quote unquote taking over the world like yeah what is the beetle gonna do it's gonna <laughs> rule like it's gonna be like king of australia or something <laughs> that's that's like luther's job right. he, but he, he was happy with a bag of stolen jewelry like was, <laughs> does he does he aspire to a political leadership position i don't think so he's no. just yeah but yeah so as moonstone is going to leave zemo to this detonating satellite Zemo was actually able to convince Atlas to secretly help him into an escape pod. So this is kind of an interesting character bit. And again, this goes back to why I think this is a a pretty interesting character is because Atlas doesn't want to be a supervillain anymore. He likes being a superhero or at least feels compelled to do the right thing. But he's also just like not good at resisting this guy, right? (laughs) Like Zemo was like, you owe me all this stuff. And like, he just makes a dumb decision. He's also, he's wiping the slate clean. Like, Zemo saved him. Now he's saving Zemo. And once he's done that, he can step away from this guy and forge his own life going forward. So it's it's not another dumb decision necessarily. I think for whatever um, honor that Atlas has, and that's, and that's what kept him, like, attached to Zemo at the hip all along... He still owes this guy his life, and he he feels some gratitude and loyalty because of that. But he also recognizes that Zemo is a monster and not someone he wants to be attached to anymore. (laughs) So he saved him. We're done. And the next time we meet, the situation will be different, one hopes. But But I also think, like, if you went to, like, a philosopher or professor of ethics or something, and they said, like, am I – if this, you know, son of a Nazi guy is saving my <laughs> life, am I obligated to save his life? And he'd be like, probably not. You know, yeah, like, I know. I you, know. You let the guy go. But no, I, no, I, 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 I take the point there. So when all is said and done, 
the Thunderbolts are surrounded by the Avengers and the Fantastic Four. So everybody recognizes that, like, yes, the Thunderbolts, um, you know, basically ran a huge con in the world and almost took over the world. So that's that's a bad that's a, a check mark in the negative column. <laughs> in the positive column, they were instrumental in like stopping Zemo's plans. So, like maybe they're turning over a new leaf. So like So they didn't go through with it. It was an attempted right. <laughs> coup. <laughs> Do they give Nobel Prizes away for attempted chemistry? No. <laughs> <laughs> so can they convict on an attempted coup? I'm not sure. Well, it's like uh, Stanley always used to point out in Doctor Doom stories, like there's no there's no law against trying to take over the world. <laughs> so, <laughs> technically. Uh, but yeah, so like so like they're they're sort of like hemming and hawing about like, oh, should we turn these guys in or let them go? And Cap, you know, Captain America wisely points out that like that's for the courts to decide whether they should be punished or not. Um, and they're all like, okay, fine, T- you know, take us in. And we're not sure like, are they planning something? Right. What's going to happen next? But then they vanish. Ooh. <laughs> Cliffhanger. End of the first year. Yeah. Boom. What an ending, actually. I give a 12, 12 issue run, too. And yeah, pulls the rug out again at the end. Yeah. We got, we got, we got lots more stories, so buckle up. Yeah. So, what did you think of the big climactic arc here? Because I have to say, like, again, we were talking about how the first issue sort of gets all the attention and like the later issue is less so, but like, I really like this three issue arc here, 10 to a 10 to 12. Mm-hmm. But I have to admit, like at the time it was kind of a disappointment to flip from this subtle long con that Zemo was playing and all the, you know, the sort of, will they get found out or not to like, boom, mind control plot, right? Mm. Sort of unambiguous villain stuff. But that, you know, in a way that sort of, you could read that as sort of being like part of the actual point of the story. That, like, we, the audience, want to see Zemo defeated, not just because he's the bad guy, but also because he sort of screwed up this comic book that we like so much, (laughs) in a way. You know, I think it's a great premise, but obviously unsustainable in the long term. Mm -hmm. You have to see them revealed to the world or or making their play to take over everything eventually. I'm glad Music pulled the trigger because the groundwork was laid and the book was ready to transition into the next phase. I'm also glad that some of them remain unrepentant villains. Baron Zemo isn't going to get seduced by this new lifestyle, nor would I want him to be. But the others are vulnerable to positivity and success. <laughs> <laughs> and and keeping Zemo irredeemably evil also helps position the remaining Thunderbolts against him and thus legitimize their shift to heroics. They reject not only their past lives as useless thugs, but also the, the current scheme and their leader. Yeah, it's worth pointing out that, like, they decide to rebel against him at the point that they are the most successful, right? Yep. So that, um, but yeah, what I think works so well is that, like, Busick had all these plates spinning, right, in terms of character interaction. So you have Zemo versus Moonstone and their sort of, you know, leadership tangles. You have Alice and Jolt, uh, you know, sort of surrogate brother-sister relationship thing. You have the fact that everybody in the team hates techno, including, <laughs> including Zemo a lot of the time, it seems. Yep. And that's enjoyable enough as sort of like the soap opera churn, you know, like we were talking about. And we like that out of our, our monthly serialized stories. But when you hit this arc, what you really see is that it wasn't just like Busick turning on the angst machine for the sake of it, right? Just to to have something, something to do month in and month out. Hmm. There's all these tensions that he was sort of like winding up really, really tight. And then in issue 11 or issue 10, he like 
presses the release and like all these things just sort of shoot out and interact with each other and <laughs> generate, you know, drama, right? That's the, that's the goal. And what we're doing is trying to generate drama. Yeah. Uh, the first, so like the first time that I read this, I was probably pretty sure, you know, naive as I was clearly I'm pretty <laughs> sure like, Oh, I'm, I'm sure Alice will eventually turn on well, the, the real because, Alice anyway. Right. Yeah. The, the real Alice. <laughs> He's finally going to come out of hiding and they're finally going to reveal what happened to those guys. No, I was, I was, I was, I was probably pretty sure that like, I'm sure that Atlas will eventually see the light because of his bond with Jolt and his trauma over his sister and all that. But it's been set up so well that you'd love to just watch it pay off. Right. It's like Han Solo coming back at the end of the Death Star trench run. Like I knew it was going to come and I knew it was coming, <laughs> Yeah, but that's the point. Right. Yeah. That said, I was surprised by the turn of Atlas letting Zemo go. So it is a careful balance of paying off expectations, but also building new complications. It also avoids the, the narrative necessity of nonsense, like, of of course Dr. Doom survived the explosion. He just transferred his consciousness into the mind of a bystander at the last minute. Like, here <laughs> we see the henchman putting the mastermind on the escape pod, and we are sure that we will see Baron Zemo again someday to get his revenge. So... More plot lines set up. <laughs> and you know that like everybody else on the team is going to be mad with Atlas once they find out. Yep. Like you, you put the, the, the son of a Nazi, right? He's another <laughs> seeker for him to be guilty, feel guilty about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's good stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. And like, and to be honest, like just on a pure, you know, superhero comics level, I like that techno reconfigures the entire satellite into the shape of his enormous head. <laughs> like, that, that's, like, like there's not, I, I have no like intellectual uh, thing to talk about here. I just think that's neat. <laughs> yeah. If you were, if you were a, a maniacal guy who could control electronics, wouldn't it be great if you were so egotistical, you think <laughs> the whole thing in the shape of your head. And then you, and then you like yell at the thunderbolts from the <laughs> next satellite over. <laughs> I love it. Through space. Yeah. It's yeah. perfect goofy comic book stuff, yeah. So how do you feel about the overall redemption arc of the first 12 issues? Because, like, villains reforming, right? Or semi-reforming or becoming anti-heroes or whatever. That was a fixture of 90s comics. Like, Venom is probably the big one where this is a villain who's so popular that they can carry their own book. But in order to carry their own book, they have to sort of awkwardly trans uh, transition into a protagonist role. Um. This book sort of subverts that trope by making them sort of insincere at first, you know, but like organically growing into the becoming heroes for real instead of just like waking up one day. Well, you got to remember that 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 flip from villain to hero was a fixture of 1960s comics, too. And I'm sure you do remember that. And that was just a rhetorical figure of speech. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Like in issue number nine, Black Widow, herself a former Russian spy and Iron Man villain turned superhero and leader of the Avengers, stops by to let Mach 1 and Songbird know that she's on to them. But given her own history and the history of some of her closest friends, she's willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe some of them are sincere. And so she relates a fun tale, guest written by Roger Stern, featuring the kooky quartet that replaced the original Avengers when the founding team members all went their own way. And that was when Avengers Mansion was left as home to Captain America and three former villains now acting as Avengers. She had Brotherhood of Evil Mutants members Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, 
in Iron Man Rogue Hawkeye. Black Widow's tail is meant to illustrate that a bird changing its feathers isn't easy, but it is doable if the intent is sincere. And she wants to galvanize Mach 1, Songbird, and any of the others who aren't too far gone by giving them a warning. But of course, being villains, <laughs> they kind of gither and don't do anything until Zemo forces the issue in number 10. But one thing that makes the redemption thing work a little better here, and not necessarily, I mean, I guess I'm not, I'm not complaining about like Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch becoming heroes or anything. I'm just talking about like sort of the 90s brand of that. Like, yeah. We had these very violent villains like, like Venom, right? Who like, he breaks out of prison and he like murders a prison guard, right? So like all of a sudden this guy wakes up one day and he decides, I'm a good guy now, right? I'm just more violent than Spider-Man is. Or they try to convince you that they had some kind of moral code going on all along or something. So uh, they should be you know, given a free pass. <laughs> the Thunderbolt's initial turn towards superheroing is, you know, arguably kind of selfish. Like the first thing that really hits them is that they like the praise, right? People are clapping at them. They like not being on the run. They like that the city gives them a cool building to live in. You know, like uh, Atlas finds out that if he's a good guy, a woman with red hair and glasses will want to go out with you. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, it, it's, it starts out as they're not like immediately seduced by like, oh, being a hero like feels nice or this is something that I've been wanting to do all along. It's like, oh, actually there's it's kind of, kind of a sweet gig, right? That's sort of an inversion of what, Busick explored with Marvels. In Marvels, it's all about how the life of a hero is one of constant persecution from a fickle public, right? Whereas here, being a hero is a nice thing to be, right? People, <laughs> uh, it's actually kind of refreshing that like this is a series that suggests that if you do good deeds, people will by and large appreciate it. Yeah, and in the wake of all of the good they've done as well, they're they are kind of stunned at the magnitude of Zemo's plan to actually conquer the Earth. Like, they've been risking their lives the last few months to protect the Earth. <laughs> Largely while Zemo was hanging out back at headquarters arguing with the authorities to give him security codes. And I think just the doing of good deeds and unselfish acts has galvanized them to some extent. And and they've operated a lot outside of Zemo's direct leadership by that point. Mm-hmm. A lot of these characters were reimagined or, or repositioned as having been sent on the wrong path by by circumstances in their lives, but having the potential to change that if given the opportunity. And here they're finally really given that opportunity, like the rubber meets the road. So starting with issue 13, the Thunderbolts are on the run and they bounce around from adventure to adventure and eventually connecting with Hawkeye and a new status quo under his leadership. So I think that we should do like the next, you know, however many issues in a future episode, because I really like where the book goes from here, mm-hmm. you know, but, um, but at, at the time there was some disappointment from fans or maybe it was just wizard. <laughs> um, like, you know, the, they had that sort of disproportionate weight given to their opinion. So like if they said fans are up in arms about that and it was like five guys in the office, maybe that was <laughs> a skewed perspective or whatever. But I think, I think, you know, I think, I think there are definitely people out there who are like, oh, I wish they would have stuck with the villains posing as heroes thing for like another year or so. So what do you think? Um, did, did Busick sort of, you know, turn the cards over too early or, or what? Not, no, I, absolutely not. I, like I said, I, it had to happen sooner or later. And honestly, it's to the book's overall benefit to have it happen sooner rather than later. 
once the Avengers and the Fantastic Four are back, there's less of a need for the Thunderbolts in general, and it's going to be harder for them to maintain the facade anyway. And there's a tendency for books to cling too long to the status quo rather than let the story actually develop organically and satisfyingly. As of this recording, the X-Men titles are in the middle of this, for example. And the Clone Saga from the 90s had similar trouble. You know, rather than wrapping up and letting go, it kept accreting barnacles and spiraling out of control. Thunderbolts remains a well-regarded book, I think, in part because there never was any wheel spinning. They just beginning, middle, conclusion. Like, that was, they had a full yeah. story. And, yeah. uh, and to their credit, they had more in their back pockets to keep going. And I think it only got better actually afterwards. No, I, I, I think, you know, that, that's, that's the big secret of Thunderbolts that I think it does get better once they abandon the concept. Cause also like the, after the first 10 issues or so, like, I don't know how many more variations on that setup that you can actually do. Right. Of like, are we going to get found out? Are we not going to get found out? Am I going to get the access codes? Am I not going to get the access codes? Yeah. I think, I think, I think this is like, and there was also like a couple of other, like, you know, the, the Spider-Man team up issue, the, you know, an appearance in Heroes for Hire. Like, I feel like this had been pretty well explored actually by the time of this and they were ready to go on to something, something different. Busek and Bagley keep working on this through issue 33. After that, Fabian Nicieza replaces Busek at, at that point, and eventually Patrick Zercher replaces Bagley. And that combo goes through issue 75 in 2003. That's a very healthy and respectable run. Mm -hmm. um, after that, the book gets reformatted into kind of this fight club thing involving supervillain characters having like underground, you know, fighting rings. Um, just because like, Bill Jameis hated things that were already working. Right? <laughs> Is it working? Yes. Did I have anything to do with this? No. Well, we got to change. Something that. has to be done there, clearly. Yeah. So that that only runs for six issues and then it gets immediately canceled and like the Thunderbolts title gets canceled as well. I don't know anybody who's actually read that. Have Do, do you? I worked in a comic shop and could read anything for free. And no, I do not know anyone who's actually read this. Well, I, okay. Uh, I think I read the first issue. Maybe I read the rest of it. I honestly don't remember. That's how much of an impression it left on me. So despite the fact that that got canceled after the fight bolts thing or whatever you want to call it, um, Marvel keeps reviving the Thunderbolts comic book. There's a series going on right now going to make a movie called Thunderbolts. It's not going to have any of the characters, I don't think, but it's it's called Thunderbolts, I guess. Yeah. Um, Thunderbolts is just this trademark name that they can put on a book from time to time. It doesn't have to be the same characters. It doesn't have to be the same concept. Usually there's some sort of aspect of villains being reformed to or forced to work as heroes. Uh, the movie looks like it's going to be like Suicide Squad kind of deal, I guess. Mm. But yeah, like so, like um, uh, a lot of the villain-focused revivals of Thunderbolts tend to focus on bigger name characters. So you have like Warren Ellis's Civil War era run had Norman Osborn and Venom and Bullseye. Um, there was a team that included Red Hulk, uh, Punisher, and Elektra, and Deadpool. I actually like the original series characters as as Busick sets them up. So like, to me, it's a shame, right? I mean, th these were these were never popular characters. <laughs> 
But I really came to like, you know, that's, I mean, that's, that was the whole point of the series, it seems like to me, is to like, any character can be a good character. Yeah. Let me help you get to know them or like make up some stuff so that you can get to know these characters. Um, but it is like hard to deny that there are more commercially appealing lineups out there. For sure. And, and like that all-star lineup was also, I think, during the era when Spider-Man and Wolverine were on the Avengers. And a lot of classic characters have been thrown aside and or actively killed off because they're not perceived to be popular enough. It's kind of a weird period at Marvel, to be honest. But that may simply be because I have nothing more than a passing familiarity with it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, th- I think it was weird. I mean, just as like as like a person who had been reading for some time before that, I feel like one of the defining characteristics of the Marvel Universe used to be that Spider-Man and Wolverine wouldn't be official Avengers. Like, they could help out, you know, in your Infinity Blank crossover or whatever, but like... The Justice League was all of our most popular guys in one book. But Spidey and Wolverine not being Avengers, even though they sold, you know, the most books, was sort of the proof of differentiation in my mind, at least at the time. Once that was no longer true, then it sort of blew the doors off, right? Like, why not let Deadpool join the Avengers? Like, who, you know, who cares anymore, I guess? Heck, why doesn't Conan the Barbarian join the Avengers? <laughs> Because they're going to lose their rights, and then you're not going to be able to reprint Savage Avengers. <laughs> Although, you know what? I understand that Rom Space Knight is now in play again. So Yeah. Never say never. Um, final thoughts, Jim, on Thunderbolts. Because I want to put this out there. I sincerely believe that this deserves to be considered as a classic Marvel run in company, at least, with things like the Claremont Byrne X-Men, uh, Simonson Thor, maybe even Miller Daredevil. Is that a crazy thing to suggest? Like, do you like maybe you think that's pushing it? That's not quite at that level. I don't, I don't know. But like, I think that it's easy to dismiss just sort of out of hand something from the late '90s for sort of an all-timers run, just because it's like you know, LOL '90s Marvel pouches and stuff, right? But I, I think that there is a conversation to be had at least about this book. I'm. Not sure I would have made that suggestion myself, but now that you have, I find I can't really argue with it. <laughs> yes. I, I I think the only <laughs> element that might disqualify this run is its length. Like, Busek only did 33 issues, but they're good. So good. There's mm-hmm. an issue later in this run that literally made me jump out of my seat with excitement. Like, possibly the only time that has ever happened to me while reading a comic book. So I love this series, but I guess it's hard for me to tell whether Thunderbolts really is that good a comic or whether I in particular am just susceptible to his charms. I mean, I'm, I, you're clearly susceptible to the same charms at least. So you're, there's, you've got, you've got two people here, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> there, there are dozens of us, dozens. <laughs> so you had mentioned uh, in our Marvels episode, Busick doing a lot of like sort of meat and potato stuff in superhero wise. And something that this series really shows is that, like, he just knows how to write superhero comics, right? Like, he just he just does it, right? <laughs> and, like, that's not as easy as it looks because a lot of people try to do meat and potatoes books and they're just boring, right? Like, how many, you know, random 80s issues of comics have you read that are just going through the motions that are not compelling in, it in any way? But there's a lot of people who actually – can't even be bothered to do meat and potatoes. And like, I miss the meat and potatoes when it's not there. 
Well, you know, I kind of feel bad for saying that now because rereading these 12 issues in particular, I can see how meticulously Busick was building everything out page by page, subplot by subplot. There's strong character work, but also almost everything moves the plot along in part because the plot rests on how these characters are going to react to any given situation. When the test comes, do they step up? Do they do the right thing? No. (laughs) But once Jolt gives them that push, they do. And that's because of everything that came before, big and little. And, you know, I complain a lot, period. But I complain a lot also (laughs) specifically about telling without showing. In this book, all these 12 issues is all show. It was a very rewarding Mm -hmm. reread. I haven't looked at these in probably decades, and they still gave me that same kind of joy I got 25 years ago when I first read them. Maybe I appreciate them a little more even because there's really nothing like this on the racks these days. Even just thinking about like movies and TV shows and stuff, like there's a million shows out there about like a basically decent person who gets corrupted by the allure and temptations of a life of crime until they recognize that like they have stopped being a decent person. And this is like the total opposite, which is, you know, very, was very refreshing after like the grim and gritty nineties, right. That like these people are tempted to be good and they are, you know, the the public is like responding to them, trying to be good and like validates that. And one day they wake up and look in the mirror and go, Oh, I'm a superhero, aren't I? And you know, that's technically a fairly common occurrence in the Marvel universe. Even the MCU is getting into the swing of things with the way it's developed Loki. But it's rarely as well done as it's done here, in all honesty. So next episode, can I make a request for the next one of these? I'm tired of reading. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know that sounds sounds weird for somebody doing a comics podcast, but you know what? <laughs> Scraping my eyeballs across the page. It's <laughs> I'm you know, re- reading those tiny little captions and the little, you know, the the boxes. This kind of violates our, our mission statement, Justin. Where are you going with this? <laughs> Look, I'm I'm exhausted, okay? I'm burnt out. <laughs> what would be nice for a change of pace. Just gonna put it out there. Uh-huh. I'd like to sit in my basement. And watch some 30-year-old cartoons. That sounds good to me. That's how I want to spend <laughs> my summer. Okay. All right. Okay. But I would also like to talk slightly less. <laughs> like what if instead of contributing like about 50% of the conversation, right? It was more like, oh, I don't know. I'm just going to put a number out there. 33%. Huh. 33.3 repeating. Maybe. And if I do the math on that, I think we might need a third person. A, oh. a guest if you will. Oh, good. Because if it was just me picking up the slack, we would lose uh, <laughs> no, listeners. I, w- <laughs> I, I, would, I would never, I would never, 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 never make you do that much work. <laughs> I'll tell you what we should do. Okay. Right? What if we invite Cameron Kunzelman from the Range Touch Network of Podcasts to come on the show and then we could talk about the 1992 X-Men animated series with him? Okay. That sounds cool That's, to me. It's, yeah. Put it out there. Uh, should we say the first first season? If people out there in Radio Land want to rewatch. So um, meet us back here for that. Cool. But until then, you can reach out to us on Twitter and Instagram at Iron Age of Comics or via email at Iron Age Comics Podcast at gmail.com. Please consider rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star review and we will read it out on air. And as always, 
consider sharing our show with the comics reading people in your life um, or the non-comics reading people. The, get, get people to read Thunderbolts. It's just a good book. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hear you can read uh, comic books on, on the internet these days. So um, there, there's no excuse. Yep. So thanks for listening. And for the Iron Age of Comics, I have been Justin Zyduck. I've been Jim Cannon. And have a good night.